Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. It's early still, certainly too early to celebrate, but so far, South Asia has avoided the worst of the coronavirus. Despite being home to 25% of the world's population, the region thus far accounts for just 1% of all confirmed cases and less than one half of 1% of all deaths. South Asian governments have implemented some of the world's most restrictive quarantine restrictions, but that doesn't mean they can afford to be complacent. Minimal testing has probably masked the true extent of the virus, and high population density and underdeveloped public health systems mean that any outbreak could quickly spiral out of control. In this episode, we're going to bring you an in-depth analysis of the virus's impact on South Asia's two largest countries, India and Pakistan. First, our colleague Anubhav Gupta from the Asia Society Policy Institute interviews Ravi Agrawal, managing editor of Foreign Policy magazine, about India's response to COVID-19. Then, Anubhav speaks with Maimal Sarfraz, Pakistan correspondent for The Hindu, about the virus in that country. Both of our guests are alumni of our Asia 21 Young Leaders Network. We'll begin with Ravi Agrawal. The extension was not that much of a surprise because India uh, still hasn't ramped up testing enough and the number of cases continue to rise. Um, They are not rising as quickly as they were, say, uh, two or three weeks ago, but they're still doubling about every six days or so, which, which implies that there's still a lot more to come. And as you noted, the rates of testing are still very low across the country, although they differ between states. Now, all of that said, in terms of the larger response, I would say the answer is almost twofold in that on the one hand, India, which had its first case in January, um, was quite quick among uh, uh, sort of, if you compare it to other countries, to shut down its borders, to stop travel, especially air travel, uh, to impose screening at uh, ports and at airports. Uh, it did put in measures to try uh, to begin contact tracing uh, among the people who uh, had been tested positive uh, to see who else they had been in touch with. So it's not like the Indian state did not put in place some measures uh, at the start. The problem is, uh, as we're seeing with this virus, is that once community spread begins, and the evidence points to the fact that it has begun in India, it's very hard to trace, it's very hard to keep track of. and. Ultimately, what you really need is mass testing, and that is where India has not really succeeded. It hasn't been able to ramp up the number of tests, the testing points, the speed with which tests are processed, not only for people who may have the coronavirus, but also to test whether people who have died have died because of COVID-19. So uh, on two fronts there, the testing has not been strong enough. And then lastly, uh, Anubhav, uh, on the lockdown, It was necessary. Uh, It was important. And in many respects, the lockdown may have saved tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. That said, it wasn't a perfect lockdown. Uh, The lockdown uh, ignored many millions of people who are migrants. There are 45 million migrant workers in India who weren't able to get home in town. Um, It also didn't account for supply chains of food as well as it should have. It didn't account for people who live in cramped slums for whom social distancing is a privilege. Um, So there are many instances, daily wage laborers for whom guarantees of income were not put in place. Um, There are reasons now why we're beginning to believe that 
uh, India may have to shift its strategy and bring certain sectors back faster than, say, Western economies would. That's great. And, you know, you mentioned the implementation of the lockdown, and Prime Minister Modi did something quite uh, rare, which is he apologized publicly for the, for the initial implementation. You mentioned the hardship that was placed on India's poor and especially migrant workers since the initial implementation, now that the lockdown has been extended, what has the government done to, to make it a little bit easier on migrant workers and, and for India's poorest? Sure. Well, it's set up, for example, um, uh, sort of rest houses for migrant workers wherever they are. Uh, as they were on uh, route back to their homes, uh, it has set up camps. It is trying to feed them. Um, again, it is not like the government isn't trying. It's not like it isn't doing anything at all. Um, this is a vast country that is, you know, as we all know, densely populated, very hard to keep track of all of these people. Um, but enough people have slipped through the cracks, enough people are suffering. Um, we've all seen the images, for example, of in Delhi by the Yamuna River, people just sort of seeking shelter under the bridge. We've all seen the images of thousands and thousands of migrant workers just walking home from Delhi and Mumbai to their villages, even if they are hundreds of kilometers away. Those are heartbreaking scenes. And I guess more than just the, the nature of what we're seeing is also the danger that these um, migrant workers could easily be carriers. They could be asymptomatic mm -hmm. carriers who would then uh, take coronavirus back to their villages. And, you know, as with all things in India, um, once this crisis truly reaches rural parts of the country, it'll be that much harder for India to fight back. We all know that the healthcare system is weak nationally, but at least the cities have a higher count of uh, hospital beds and doctors. Um, the villages do not. So that is definitely a scenario that India wants to avoid. Um, the question is, can it really over the next six to nine months, assuming that we don't have a vaccine until then? Yeah, it's really a lose-lose situation. You either act quickly and deliberately uh, early on um, to prevent the, the spread to, to become really uh, outrageous, uh, but then really endure a lot of temp you know, short-term um, challenges. And one of that is, of course, the economic fallout. So I wanted to ask on the economic challenge, which is you know, really imposed by the lockdown itself. So it's in, in some ways, it's a policy-created economic um, uh, crash or collapse, is India's stimulus package enough to deal with the economic damage uh, caused by the lockdown so far? I know the initial package was fairly modest. It was only about 1% of GDP. If you compare that to what other countries have done, for instance, in the US, the, the stimulus was close to 10%. So has India done enough? And what does the government have in the works to continue to try to minimize the economic damage caused by this? The, uh, I don't think the stimulus package was large enough. And the truth is we won't know what people's needs are for quite a while. Um, much of the Indian economy functions uh, in an informal sort of way where uh, all wages aren't always documented. Uh, for a lot of daily wage laborers, they may not have the means to accept government stimulus plans. They may not have the means to accept um, food rations, they may not have bank accounts to be able to even get their employers to pay uh, them their monthly salaries or their weekly wages. Um, so there are a lot of things that don't always show up as economic activity uh, on the government's books. And I think those are the people who are going to suffer the absolute most. Uh, I think states will need to take measures basically 
to uh, put in place measures to feed people en masse, uh, to ensure that uh, health clinics and the facilities, a uh, basic sort of educational facilities and testing reaches people in rural parts of India. It's still unclear whether the state has been able to do any of those things uh, amid the lockdown. So uh, I'm quite worried uh, right now about the impacts of the coronavirus in India. And I think um, we will see um, countries across South Asia at this moment, you know, strongly deliberate whether uh, the, the cure is worse than the disease in this case, mm. in that uh, their considerations are going to be very different from those of Western economies because it's that much harder to stimulate. It's that much harder to reach people to help them in the first place. Great. And, you know, these are incredibly tense times. Even in the U.S., there's been uh, stories about uh, people who've left New York facing discrimination in states nearby. And so, you know, it's not something that's unique uh, to India, but I've heard, you know, there was an incident, unfortunate incident, where a Muslim missionary group, the Tablighi Jamaat, held a large gathering that was in Delhi in mid-March. Um, and that has unfortunately led to um, a lot of cases spreading in India. That that much has been reported on. Um, what has happened in the aftermath is quite troubling. This, there seems to be an increase in anti-Muslim rhetoric and conspiracy theories, especially on social media, that have now actually led to some incidents of actual violence against Muslims. So what do you make of that? And especially given where we were at, you know, just at the end of February, we saw terrible communal violence in Delhi. Uh, in the capital as President Trump was was visiting. So given the context we were in, where things were already tense, do you see that coronavirus, this, this crisis has made things much worse for India's uh, kind of social fabric? I do, unfortunately. I think India was already at a very weak point when it comes to social cohesion and communal harmony. And, you know, what the coronavirus has done across the board is to catalyze and exacerbate problems that already existed. So if you look at India's problems with Islamophobia and communal disharmony, those have certainly gotten much worse because of the pandemic. The group you mentioned, Tablighi Jamaat, held uh, a large gathering in Delhi's Nizamuddin West, uh, right next to where I used to live when I lived there. And um, that gathering has turned out to be sort of the root source of a substantial number of cases across the country as pilgrims left Delhi and then went back to their homes uh, around the country. Um, that said, uh, Muslims were not the only people who were meeting uh, around about that time, and this is the early to middle March. Um, there were other groups that also held meetings, uh, Hindu groups, uh, Sikh groups as well. Um, and it's, it's striking how uh, the Muslim group was singled out for its meeting. Um, and uh, Corona Jihad, for example, was a hashtag that was trending on Twitter. Um, a lot of conspiracy theories related to Muslims, such as the fact, such as the the, the theory that Muslims would um, spit on people to try and spread the virus. I mean, really vile theories that, with fake videos and fake imagery, um, were spread online. And you have to say, I mean, this only. This can only happen in a society where there is already a great amount of fear and distrust. And, and so that really is an indictment, I think, of, of social cohesion in India. Um, but what we will see, however, is as the number of cases rise rapidly, and they will, it's going to be that much harder to blame one community when this is clearly 
uh, spreading uh, uh, much more rapidly and by many more people across the country. Okay. And the government, you know, really has a responsibility to some extent in making sure that there's a there's solidarity, that there's a unified response. How would you say that the, the federal government has, has dealt with this kind of troubling rise in Islamophobia? When I say well, the central government. They don't have a very good track record on that, I'm afraid. Um, you know, uh, in large part, if you look back over the last few years, uh, the ruling Bharatiya Janta Party, led by Prime Minister Modi, um, has many senior ministers, senior politicians within uh, its party who have led the, the cause um, for um, increasing uh, the divide between Hindus and Muslims. Uh, you have very senior ministers who have led the dog whistles, as it were, um, to try and divide these two groups to create more fear um, uh, and essentially divide them into separate vote banks, as it were. Um, so in that sense, uh, the responsibility for the current mood lies with them. Um, but in terms of how this particular uh, crisis has been handled, in terms of the Tablighi Jamaat message and, and how they've been vilified, it's not just the government, it is also the media, which could have done a much better job of making clear what exactly happened, why uh, the religion isn't to blame, and it's crazy that we even need to be talking about this. Um, but you know, part of the problem in India is that the media itself is so dependent on government support uh, in terms of advertising, uh, and the Indian media is also heavily dependent on advertising, not on uh, subscriptions, um, which makes them that much more susceptible to government messaging. Uh, so that, that's certainly a problem as well uh, that the entire country is facing. We're going to take a short break here to talk about a couple of Asia Society's upcoming programs, which these days are all online only. On Thursday, April 30th, Daniel Russell speaks with Siaru Shirley Lin and Chunhui Chur about what the world can learn about Taiwan's handling of COVID-19. And on Monday, May 4th, Philip Ivanov will speak with Nobel laureate Peter Doherty, an expert on infectious diseases. To find out more about all of our upcoming programs, visit asiasociety.org online. And now let's listen to Anubhav Gupta's conversation about Pakistan and COVID-19 with Memel Sarfraz. I first like to start by saying that, you know, I, uh, the number of deaths have increased to 128 and the cases have also increased to 6,871 in Pakistan. So um, the number of cases keep increasing with every passing hour, unfortunately. Uh, as for the lockdown, well, uh, we may have extended it for another two weeks, but uh, we have relaxed it. So, so uh, let me just begin by saying that, you know, I mean, the problem, let me identify the problem. The first problem is the mixed signal by the government, especially the federal government. Uh, what they've basically done is they announced it on Tuesday that, you know, we're extending, while we're extending uh, the lockdown, what we're doing is that we're opening up some industrial sectors, some uh, low risk industries, and also uh, uh, shops like dry cleaners and uh, nurseries and vets and other uh, bookstores, stationery stores. So <clears throat> what this has led to is it has given a mixed signal to the people of Pakistan. The first two weeks when the, when the original lockdown started was actually in line with, uh, you know, it was effective because it wasn't a curfew, but it was a very effective lockdown because 
uh, it was in line with the global understanding of the disease that you know there should be social distancing you can only go out when it is necessary so people were following that and most shops were closed except for grocery shops and uh, hospitals and pharmacies uh, most of them were, and offices uh, most of offices were also closed we i've been working from home since 16th march uh, while the lockdown uh, was implemented on 24th but prime minister imran khan uh, from day one has not been in favor of lockdown he uh, first confused lockdown with uh, a curfew which it isn't uh, and people and sources within the government also tell me that prime minister never wanted a lockdown but in the end because the sindh government the provincial government actually uh, one of the uh, four provinces they went for a lockdown they announced it and then the other three provinces followed suit and then you know prime minister also understood that you know we have to do it because the healthcare experts and everybody else were saying it so the first challenge is now this lockdown this uh, uh, lifting of restrictions on lockdown so people are now basically thinking that you know if the government has uh, lifted the restrictions then you know there's no harm in going out i've actually seen that you know traffic has increased shops around my house have opened up which were closed uh, in the previous two weeks people are not taking it as seriously as they were in the last two weeks and this is something that i actually feel and not just me it's a lot of health experts who are saying that you know this can lead to an exponential growth in the number of coronavirus cases because pakistan's own government had said that their projections were that by april 25th, 25th will reach the peak uh, of our cases but they've actually lifted the lockdown before that they could have increased it at least for for another week i know that ramzan is starting on 25th and uh, prime minister imran khan was rightly worried about poor people and you know poorest of the poor and daily wages laborers and uh, small and medium businesses shutting down but uh, what the government has essentially done is put them at risk put actually put the poorest of the poor at more risk and uh, this can lead to a community spread already more than 50% of our cases are now uh, locally transmitted they began with uh, pilgrims from taftan sorry pilgrims from iran and pilgrims from saudi arabia and also international travelers uh, our first two corona cases came out on february 26 uh, so uh, but but now most of the cases are locally transmitted so there is no proper mechanism to actually test or aggressively test just like ravi said you know he mentioned this about india as well and this is the same problem in pakistan that we are not aggressively testing at all so we may have contained the spread for the first two weeks when we went into a lockdown uh, but uh, and now with the relaxation in the lockdown i think uh, god forbid but i i actually feel that you know the cases will exponentially go up and we will not know how to deal So a lot of the similar challenges as we talked about for India um remember in the US we've seen several state governors navigating the crisis in a very different way from the federal government uh which is you know generally been seen as being slow to act um there seems to be the same dynamic in Pakistan uh you've written about how the response of some provincial governments has been much more vigorous than the central governments Uh, and there's a lot of variation between the four at the provincial level as well. So, can you give us a sense of that which provinces are doing better, which are doing worse, and then overall how has that disjuncture between the provincial governments and the center affected the overall effectiveness of Pakistan's response? 
Okay, so Anubhav, the thing is that, you know, uh, Sindh, uh, so we have four provinces, right? Punjab, which is the largest province, then there's Sindh, second largest province, then there's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Balochistan. Now, Punjab and uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa are being ruled by Pakistan Tariq Insaf, which is in power in, at the federal level, in, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan's party. So they have a government in Punjab and they have a government in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and the Balochistan government is an ally of the PTI. Sindh is the only province where uh, the Pakistan People's Party, which is not in alliance with the uh, ruling Tehreek uh, Insaf, is in power. Uh, and this is uh, 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 former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto's late, late Benazir Bhutto's party, uh, now being led by her son Bilawal Bhutto. Uh, but uh, the Chief Minister of Sindh is Murad Ali Shah. So what happened was when when the Corona pandemic started, we saw from day one that the Sindh government was very hands-on. They were in favor of a lockdown. They wanted a lockdown. They asked for a lockdown. And uh, due to the 18th Amendment constitutional change that happened um, during the PPP uh, government uh, almost a decade ago, so now the provinces are autonomous. They can make their own decisions. They don't really have to rely on the federal government to you know, tell them what to do. It's not a very centralized system anymore in Pakistan. And so the Sindh government said that we are going for a lockdown. They announced the lockdown, I think it was on 22nd. Uh, uh, and it, it, it was going to start from 23rd March. Uh, and uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan had, act- and then he actually, Prime Minister Imran Khan actually came on TV that day and he addressed the nation and he said something like, you know, uh, lockdown shouldn't happen. This is, uh, this is on the same day then when he knew that, you know, Sindh was going to announce a lockdown and Sindh had already said that we were, we were going to impose a lockdown. But then what happened? So then what happened was that uh, after, uh, so the next day, uh, the other three provinces also said that we are going for a lockdown. And this actually happened because uh, uh, a lot of people and a lot of sources say that. And of course, uh, it's on the record as well that DG ISPR, the military spokesperson, also held a press conference. And he said that, you know, the provinces have asked us to come and help them and we're going for a lockdown. So, so basically, uh, a lot of people say that while Prime Minister Imran Khan himself was against a lockdown, uh, the military, in a way, uh, forced him because... Uh, what everybody thought was that Sindh is doing the right thing because that's what the global projections were all about, that, you know, you have to go for a lockdown. And the second step was, of course, aggressive mm-hmm. testing. And so that's what Sindh did. Sindh led by example. Now, this, now the problem is uh, that the response, the response of the other three provinces has not been bad either, by the way. They have been very good, very vigilant. But Sindh has been praised the most because they've been very focused. They, they know what they're doing. They're focusing on how to control the spread uh, the other, uh, the lockdown in Sindh was uh, quite strict, stricter than uh, the other provinces in a way. But what happened was that then, because of the projection that the Sindh government got in the media, also uh, their political opponents like the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, from, former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's party, they were also praising Sindh government uh, and the efforts by them. The PTI felt insecure in a way. I don't. Uh, I mean, it's a global emergency. It's a national emergency also. This is something that should not have been politicized. But for some reason, a lot of their ministers and a lot of their members started uh, attacking the People's Party government. The People's Party government has always been attacked for uh, its alleged corruption and, you know, not being that great administratively. They're very good at legislation. But a lot of people say that, you know, they're not very good at administration. But this time, uh, the Sindh government proved that they were... Uh, they had achieved administrative excellence during this whole global uh, corona epidemic. So, a pandemic, sorry. 
So this is something that maybe made them insecure. And although this is not the time, but even now uh, the PTI ministers are attacking uh, the Sindh government, which I feel is very unfortunate. Hmm. So there's a a lot of kind of political. It sounds like a lot, it's been become a political football between the different parties. Um, it's you know it's very similar to what's happening in other parts of the world. So Pakistan at least isn't isn't alone in that. Um, I wanted to ask you, Mamal, about. Uh, the economy. So, you know, we had Pakistan's economy was already struggling. Uh, we went to the went to the IMF last year for a bailout. Uh, you were dealing with uh, currency devaluation, rising inflation. So, you know, suffice to say, COVID nineteen did not hit at a good time as far as the economy was concerned. Um, so, what's the economic fallout been already, and how is the government trying to um, really respond to that? Uh, how are they preparing themselves for the the short term and the medium term? So, Anubhav, the thing is that even if there was no corona, Pakistan's economy was falling apart, as you've just mentioned. Our debt was already too high. It would have been a very difficult job for the government to make come up with a proper budget. We were already melting down. What corona has done is destroyed us. It has fried our economy. Uh, this is extremely unfortunate but you know even the world bank report uh, on on south asia the, its recent report said that you know pakistan will face its first recession in 68 years i mean of course there's going to be a global recession but pakistan will be really hard hit and uh, the economic mismanagement of this government we've already seen our finance minister being changed early on and even then you know the government being very clueless about um, economy and the measures that they took so so i don't know how they are going to deal with it now the uh, what will happen to the small and medium uh, businesses they will shut down what will happen to the poorest of the poor while i understand that the government is trying to help the poorest of the poor there is of course the poverty reduction uh, program called the daisas program which was formerly benedirim income support program which is very success- successful and uh, the government is giving money identifying families through that and giving money to them but uh, the daily wage the laborer all of these people are at high risk now even if you've uh, opened up industries and you've given them sops the problem with that is that you know so a bus load of factory workers will go there's no public transport so the industry has to manage their own transport so a bus will be full of uh, workers going there they'll pick them and drop them so what if they get corona in the factory what if there are no uh, because most of these industries will not follow follow sops there won't be anything you know i mean any strict action won't be taken against them so they can be spreaders not super spreaders maybe but you know minor spreaders and they can sure. give it to their families and then so what will happen then this is something that, you know uh, a lot of us asked when on tuesday the government announced that you know they are kind of relaxing the lockdown while not really saying that they are relaxing it but they said you know it's a partial lockdown a lot of us asked that, if you could have just waited for a week or 10 days things would have been better because we would have known our peak we would have hit our curve's peak and then we would have known how to deal with it now when you've opened up the industry uh, we saw uh, the religious scholars over here say that you know we're going to open up mosques as well then so then what's stopping people from opening up marriage halls or uh, from having a large public gathering So sure. if you yeah so you haven't really done it gradually you really haven't done that gradually what you've really done is that you know you've given people an excuse to flout the law and you've given people an excuse to actually think that you know maybe corona is not that uh, uh, that serious you know maybe it's just a flu maybe we sure. will not die so so basically 
we've kind of unfortunately uh, we've kind of the government has kind of downplayed the seriousness I'm, and i'm talking about the federal government over here they've kind yeah. of downplayed the seriousness of this entire thing because you know um, uh, even the prime minister and others have been saying that you know it's not jaan leva so jaan leva is something that, you know you cannot die from it He's, they said it in the beginning and then they said only older people die even though pakistan's projections and trajectory actually shows that you know younger more younger people have died than older people that'll do it for this week's episode of asia in depth for more you can subscribe to this podcast on apple spotify and youtube and check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org/podcast and please remember to stay safe wherever you are we're all in this together I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time.